We're in a series on the book of John. We're in John 14, and uh, we were moving right along through John, and then when we hit 13, and I just started thinking and praying and reading and just seeing the import, the power in these passages that we've been looking at, I, I slowed down. I just slowed down. There was just too much there, and I felt like it would be wrong to gloss over and just to move quickly. And uh, so we have a larger passage this time, but it's still something that's incredibly important. We're talking about the Spirit. Now, just to review, you know, for a lot of you, I know this is, we've gone over it a lot. They're still at dinner. They're still at what we would call the Lord's Supper. They're still there. Jesus is teaching. And this passage, we have to remember, with all of these ones we've been looking at, this passage is part of a larger sermon. So the context of the larger sermon influences how we look at this passage, right? And, and we can't just take it alone as a standalone thing. And, and we see here what's on Jesus' mind as he's speaking. What is he teaching them? He knows, he knows he's hours away, right? He knows what's coming. And so what does he think is the most important thing to say kind of as last words? And, and he's been speaking to them about important things. And it does us, it's, it, we have to be careful, I should say. These are important for us. They were not just important for the, for the disciples. These are important for us. These are words that teach us how to live. He's teaching them, right? He's teaching them about what, it, what they're going to do. What's their mission going to be after he's gone? What is their mission going to be? What are they going to struggle with? What are they going to need help with? What is the help that he's going to give? All these types of things, they're very important, and they're for us too, all right? So he told them um, that there's this home for them. And this concept of home comes up a lot. It's a recurring theme, and it will be brought up in this, it's brought up in this passage. Jesus told them that not only is he the way, he's the destination. And we talked a little bit about that. You know, that it's, it's common in our culture, it's common in our day. People say, just enjoy the journey. Just enjoy the journey. But let me tell you something. The journey is, in, is totally influenced by what the destination is. You know, and if you're going to enjoy it, if you're supposed to be somewhere in three days and you say, I'm just going to take a fun journey and you end up way off in the wrong direction, you've screwed up the destination. So the destination informs the journey and makes the journey better, right? The journey becomes so much more important when you know the destination. So Jesus teaches them that. He teaches them that it's a relationship. It's not a series of do's and don'ts. He answers Philip's question that really, when we talked about it, Philip's question cuts to the heart of the matter. We are all searching for something, not even sure of what we're searching for at times, but we are all searching. And Jesus teaches them that he is the answer for the search. And they need to see it. He gets them to say, he talks to them about this, seeing it and believing it. He teaches them they have a mission, a purpose on this earth right here, right now, you have a mission, a purpose on this earth, right here, right now. And he teaches them that they have access to power. We talked about this through prayer, the power to change, the power to change your life, my life, and the power to affect and change other people's lives because of the Holy Spirit of God. And he's going to bring that up because this passage is going to teach about the Holy Spirit. And having a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit is key because 
This is an area where oftentimes we can struggle. We don't quite understand. It seems kind of weird. The Holy Spirit's like the third, like the, we, we never say this, right? We never say this. We say, man, the Father, the Son. Oh, yeah, and the Holy Spirit too. Kind of like he's, no. This is teaching us he's critical to our walk with God, and we would be helpless without him. We would be helpless without the Spirit. I mean, you think about it. The global explosion and expansion of the church, starting just a few years after this passage was, is, is happening, it was powered by the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over, Scripture reaffirms that to us. That explosion of the love of God through the people of God is powered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, um, last week, I was looking at something, and I came across this thing. It was, a, it was a big wind farm, but on their logo, one of the things they said was, proudly powering over 60,000 homes since 2017. Right? And I thought, that's the logo we need on our church. The Holy Spirit proud, proudly powering the expansion of the church since 33. <laughs> Just go all the way back. That's what we say. We got, we got history here, right? The Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the Spirit, first of all, I want you to see in this passage, he's, he's the other advocate, the Holy Spirit. And this is when Jesus says this. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And then at the end of the passage, he reaffirms this. He says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. So we have this, he's promised this advocate. Now, this, this word advocate can be taken a couple ways. In a, in a legal setting, it has the idea of a counselor or a lawyer. It has somebody who represents you in a legal setting. In a personal setting, it has this idea of someone who's a very close friend. It has this idea of uh, someone who will come alongside, um, like a counselor or encourager, an exhorter, even a confronter, that type of a person. And so, in this passage, that seems to be how the Holy Spirit is being talked about as this, this idea of this counselor, this encourager, this confronter, because of the way he's spoken of in it. In verse uh, 17, it says he's the spirit. I'll get you there. It says he's the spirit of truth. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit and what he does, first thing I want you to see is he teaches us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. He takes the truth. He brings the truth to us illuminates, applies the truth of Scripture. We know from other passages, Jesus, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Jesus is saying, he's going to direct you to me. He's going to point to Jesus. He's going to point to the truth of Scripture. His, his role is to apply Jesus to me because Jesus is the Word become flesh. So the Spirit applies truth in order for us to become followers of Jesus and then to become better followers of Jesus, to enter into this relationship. He's already said this is a relationship, and he's saying this is what one of the Spirit's jobs. He teaches us. He teaches us things like the truth that we are sinners, the truth that we need Jesus as our Savior, the truth that we need to commit ourselves to him wholeheartedly, the truth of how following Jesus can work out in our daily lives. The truth of God's love for us in any and all situations. He teaches that. We are to be people of the truth. 
There's a lot of struggle in our, in our day and time with truth and what is the truth. And the Spirit directs towards the truth. And the Spirit leads us that way. So the first thing is he teaches us. I want you to see the second thing. He befriends us. This is from verse 26. In verse 26, the, Holy, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach, you, will teach you all things, and then will remind you of everything I have told you. And that word remind clues us in here. This is this idea. Um, the word means to get someone to think again. It can, has this idea. It can mean, and it's used in different ways in, uh, in different areas. It can mean to gently encourage someone to think through what they're doing or to remind them of something. It also can mean to confront, to get a a swift kick in the bum, you know? It can mean that too, this whole idea of a, what a true friend is. Because here's the deal. What is a true friend? It's a person who will tell you sometimes even the things you don't want to hear because they love you so much they know you need to hear it. I talked before about um, a guy that when I first came to Christ, uh, a, a gentleman who was discipling me, and, and, and he loves sports, and I love sports. And so we did a lot of stuff together. And... Uh, and I can remember one time um, we were playing tennis, and I worked at a tennis uh, club at, at the time, and, and we were playing tennis, and, and so I, I had like a bad shot, you know, and then another one, and then I, I blew, I double faulted on a serve, and I was so mad. I just turned whew, and threw my racket against the fence. I went over and got my racket. Okay, let's keep playing. And he says, no, let's wait for a moment. And I was like, oh, here it comes. And Craig came up to me, we met at the net, and he says, you really struggle with your temper sometimes, Bob. And I'm like, no, I don't, you idiot. You know, I'm, I wanted to say that. And he said, you need to think about that. You, you've become a follower of Jesus Christ. How does that reflect Jesus in your life? And I said, it doesn't. Can we play now? You know, and he says, let's just talk for a moment. And so we talked for a little bit, and he confronted me. He confronted me. He was gentle, he was loving, but he confronted me because he said, you need to think about this. And that stuck, you, can you tell it stuck with me? <laughs> it stuck with me, it's like 45 years ago. It stuck with me, why? Because I realized he really cares about me. He cares enough to, in a sense, risk our relationship, no telling how, I'm struggling with my temper, no telling how I react. I might just say, I don't want to see you anymore and, and you know, stomp off. But he was willing to risk it out of his love for me to say, that's got to change. That's wrong, right? This is what the Spirit does. He's the idea of a friend who loves, who encourages, and can confront. And if you're about to lose control and do something stupid, a friend gets in your face. A friend may even shout at you to get you to think reasonably in the middle of a difficult situation. So he confronts, he counsels. We're told he's always with you. He's always for you always for you, always for you. And we, we need to be reminded of these things. He reminds us of, you know, I'm for you. He reminds us, you're a child of the king. God is your father. You are a citizen of heaven. You have a home, a place that is prepared for you, and you are now on your way there. How you're living now is incredibly important. That's what the Spirit does. He does this. And we're commanded not to quench the spirit. We're commanded, that word quench is the word to, uh, to suppress, to stifle. It even means to strangle or to extinguish. We can do that. Paul reminds us that don't 
quench the spirit. The spirit is trying to guide you. He's trying to love you. He's trying to teach you. He's even confronting you. Don't tell him to shut up. Don't even, you know, a word as strong as strangle. Stop it. He says, don't do that. What an incredible thing. We have the power to do that. And he says, don't use that power. The spirit speaks primarily through scripture. That's why we need to read and study and memorize. He speaks through people. He speaks through circumstances, sometimes even directly. But he teaches us, he leads us, he befriends us, and he uses us. When we speak the truth, the Holy Spirit uses that to impact the lives of others. When you, maybe at some point, it's hard to do at times, but at some point, you, you share your testimony or a part of your testimony or the fact that you're a Christian and maybe this isn't, you can't do this because of that. You, what, what's happening? You're speaking the truth and then the Holy Spirit uses it because he's the spirit of truth. He empowers truth as, as it's spoken. So when you talk to someone and you tell them things, when you invite someone to church, those types of things, God can use that as we do that. So he teaches us, he befriends us, Third one is he empowers us. And this is throughout Scripture. I mean, I could have brought up a whole bunch of passages, but I just want you, he empowers us. This is kind of in this passage when Jesus starts talking about the resurrection and how that is end up going to bring the Spirit. That's that power situation that's going on there, the power of the resurrection and the subsequent giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. That's what's happened there. He empowers us to be witnesses, just like Acts 1.8. We have that same power that happened then. Paul says the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. Imagine that. We can tap into the power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, here's what happens. I mean, I know how this happens for all of us. We want to see something, boom, big, visible. We just had 4th of July. I went and watched fireworks. It was just awesome. I love fireworks. I'm a pyromaniac, so I love fireworks, but I love the boom right? The big, ooh, that kind of thing. And we're like that. But the power that raised Christ from the dead, think about it. It raised Christ from the dead in a dark tomb with no one there. There are times when the the power that we have, that the Spirit of God uses, it works quietly in dark places when no one's around. But it's still that power. Because here's the deal. And I've, I know I've said this a lot. The power that man has, and we've seen that power a lot in our country, and we see it a lot in this world. The power that man has is the power to take away another person's life. The power that human beings have is the power to take away another person's life. But God says we have the power that brought someone back to life. We have the power that can change a person from the inside out. The only power human beings have is, is, is by force. We can force someone to obey our will. If you're a parent, you know how this works with your kids, right? You can force them to do things by sheer power. But it doesn't change their heart, right? When our kids were little, we went to a church that dressed up a lot. And we'd come to church and it'd be like this little troop, you know, four, sometimes five kids when we had our fifth one, marching along, dressed nice, right? 
all had had the little talk beforehand. You say, yes, sir, no, sir. And when somebody talks to you, look in their face, look at their eyes, right? All this stuff that we sometimes misguidedly push on our kids. And people would say, you have the perfect Christian family, Bob. And you know, I'm, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, no, because I knew them. I knew them. I knew those little demons and divas, right? I knew what they were like at home. I knew the stuff that happened. I knew the trip there. <laughs> it's reaching back. I mean, the hand of Bob, like that. I knew that thing. Yeah, right? We know that. And I could force my kids. But changing their hearts is a whole different thing. We have access to a power that changes hearts, right? This is incredibly important for us. In this world that we live in, we are in a tension, in a sense, between what we are now and what we know is coming. We still aren't, we still aren't totally, you know, we're not complete in that sense. And so we struggle, but we know what's coming, when things will be complete. The already and the not yet, some people call that. And it can be tempting to quit. It can be tempting to give up. We need a power to live for Christ. I saw a while back an interview with uh, John Lewis, a civil rights leader. He worked alongside uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And the interviewer was telling him, he, sa- he asked him something. He said, how do you convince people to be nonviolent in the face of violence? He said, how do you convince people to be nonviolent in the face of lynchings and beatings and jail and dogs attacking them and people spitting on you and being called horrible names? How do you teach people to be nonviolent in that situation? And, and John Lewis is a, was a pastor, and he started, I just heard it. I said, oh, he's, going, he's dipping into pastor mode. Here he goes. And one of the things he said, he said a number of things, but one of the things he said is, you've got to get them to see and believe that it is already done. And I was like, okay, that's what we're talking about here. To see and believe that it's already done. And he said, you've got to get them to see and believe you're already there. This is hard, but it is going to happen. You can make it. And in this passage, this is what the resurrection is. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us and he says, it's there. The home is there. The day of rest is there. The the day of joy is there. You're moving along. Believe it. This is what John is telling us. He's saying the Holy Spirit does this. He empowers us to run this race with our eyes fixed on Jesus. The book of Hebrews, this passage, it's very common, I know, but I love it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and the writer of Hebrews has been talking about using the sports stadium kind of a, of a, he says, there's this, there's this stadium, it's full of witnesses, and they're the people who have gone on before. He's already talked about them. Um, the, the Olympics and the Olympic-style games were huge in that area. Even, even in Israel, there's, a, there's a one place where there's a stadium, a track, that will hold about 80,000 people that they would have games in. And, 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 uh, and so he's saying all those people in the stands are the people who have gone on before, and they're cheering for you. They're cheering for you. Think about that. People who've gone on before you, they're cheering you on. You can do it. 
Run the race. He says, so we have this great crowd of witnesses. They're on our side. He says, therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles us. Um, one time I had the, it was a privilege, and I, I, I ran track for a little bit in high school, just a little bit. And, uh, but we had a really good team. And so we were invited to the Penn Relays, which is a huge, huge track event. We had a couple of uh, people on our track team who, who were possible, they thought, you know, could possibly um, be Olympic quality sprinters. And uh, so we went to the Penn Relays, which is the, all the best high school and college teams on the East Coast come to the Penn Relays. And there was all these famous people there that were running people that I heard of later in the, in the Olympics. And uh, I didn't run just in case you were wondering. I was there as like a fifth alternate on a, on a mid-range, like an 800, 4 by 800 team. So I knew I wasn't going to run. But I noticed, you know, you see these, these great sprinters, the 100-yard dash, and here's these, these guys, and then when the women ran. And what, what happens? They come out in their track suits, right? They come out in their track suits. And do they just run? No. They start pulling off everything that will entangle them that will slow them down so that they can run the race. And this is, this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting us to think about. He says, let's throw aside everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and slows us down. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What is he saying? He says, there is a race planned for you. There are things planned for you doesn't matter how old you are, where you're at in life right now. There are things coming up that God has put in place for you. Ephesians tells us that so clearly. And he said, let us run the perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And, and uh, I love that word. That word uh, perfecter there is the word for champion. He's our champion. He's the one who has done it. In other words, he wins the battle, not us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And you guys know what's coming. The joy set before him. What is that? It was us. When Jesus was on the cross, he saw you. And he said, for that joy, this is worth it. For that joy, I'm going through this. For you, you personally, you individually. That's amazing. And so the writer is saying, okay, so you've got this race set before you. You've got these things that God is going to bring into your life, people that God is going to bring into your life. Get ready. Get ready. Look for opportunities. So that leads us to point two. He is the other advocate. And then Jesus is going to talk about the power of love here. And I want to read, this is the longer part of the passage. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live and you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. 
They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. All right, so we come to this idea of the, Jesus is giving us the sense of the power of the love. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. They're, I'm going to be with you. The Spirit, he's told us, is going to be with you. Interestingly, in this passage, the word love is mentioned six times. The word home is mentioned again, a continuing theme from previous verses. Obeying is mentioned, connected with love, multiple times. But this passage, I mean, if you read it, it can be a little off-putting. It can be a little puzzling. It's got some strange wording. It talks about leaving and coming. It talks about seeing and not seeing. It talks about in the Father, in the Son, and in you. It talks about showing and not showing. It has this kind of stuff going on that goes back and forth and back and forth. It's as if space and time, as we understand it, is Jesus is not constrained by it, which is exactly what the truth is. Things that are natural and normal to Jesus are supernatural and paranormal to us. And what's happening here, I believe, is Jesus is trying to push them and us to see a bigger picture, a broader reality seeing with more than just our eyes. In verse 17, he says the Spirit is in us. In verse 20, he says the Son is in us. This is the stuff that the early church wrestled with and came up with the idea, the concept of the Trinity. Because they said it's just too much. It's what's happening, what's being said here. We're beginning to understand something broader. This, this, I like how some people put it with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, this dance of love that has been happening from eternity past and will continue to happen. And we are being invited into the dance. We're in the middle of it. When I was a teenager, occasionally we went to church. Um, it was kind of a high church. It was the Episcopal church and, and uh, very formal um, and for a teenager who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't understand anything that's going on, it was, um, it was very strange, oftentimes a strange experience. And I remember one time I was, when, we read this, when I read this passage a number of weeks ago, starting to study it, I was like, oh, I know why I remember the wording of this passage. Because I remember back in, in, uh, in uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida, at an Episcopal church right on the water, it was called St. Simon's on the Sound, which I always thought was a hilarious name for a church, but evidently it's not that hilarious to a lot of people. You didn't laugh, so I, evidently it's not. And so the, the, uh, the rector got up, the priest got up there, and he read a part of this passage. And he had this very, um, you know how some people, you talk to them and they talk to you, blah, 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 and then if they pray or if they do scripture, they say, Oh, Father. Suddenly their, their voice changes. And, they, and this guy would do this when he would, read, when he would read Scripture. And he'd said, on that day you will realize that I am in the Father. And you are in me. And I am in you. And I remember as a teenager going to myself, this guy is crazy. I don't understand what he's saying to me or to you. You know, I just, it was just the craziest thing. And I, I was mocking him. I know I was mocking him, but it was so weird to me. Because I didn't, I didn't understand it. I couldn't figure out what he was saying. And I don't think he knew what he was saying either because the sermon had nothing to do with what he read as a passage. And then, later, I met Jesus. And now I know what he's talking about. I understand it more. Because the Spirit's 
is in me and is with me. And he talks to me sometimes. He teaches me. He guides me. He uses people to confront me. He's worked in all those ways. And verse 23 is what happened in my life. Verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with him. And suddenly I was like, that's me. Suddenly after coming to know Jesus Christ, I said, God, I want to obey you. Before everything was hard and difficult and I didn't like it. I didn't want to be good. I didn't want to. I wanted to do what I wanted. I wanted to treat people the way I wanted to treat people. And suddenly it changed. It was a change from the inside out that no one could explain. I didn't, couldn't explain it. My parents couldn't explain it. They were thrilled. They were thrilled, but they couldn't explain it. And love leads to obedience. This is such a key thing for us. And he says in verse 23, and we'll make our home with him or with them. And here's home again. We begin to see the person we were made to be. We see the things the way we are to see things. We are invited into this dance of love. Jesus is expounding on those previous themes to keep cementing them in the brains of, of his followers and us. Because they were asking questions. It's like when he said, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. I just want to see the infant. I just I want a connection. This is what we all want, a connection with something that's greater than me. And Jesus is saying to be in God and for God to be in you is to be home. It's to belong. Because home, home is where you fit. Home is where the people who love you and you know, you, they accept you. I should say this. This is what home is supposed to be. It's not always that way because of sin. But it's supposed to be the place of loving and acceptance and freedom and comfort. A place where we can practice self-forgetfulness and not make everything all about us. Home is where you don't have to prove yourself. Home is where things are the way they should be. Things are the way they should be. That's what home is. That's what God has for us. And we're always looking for it. People, we see it all the time, can't quite reach it, never quite finding it. But sometimes we get glimpses, and they affect us profoundly. I'm going to set this up. We're going to watch a little video. We've watched it before, a long, long time ago. But let me say, there, there was a um, um, number of years ago, a little nine-year-old boy. Oh, I'm going to cry. See, this, his name uh, is Jack, and... Um, He's in Nebraska, and one day, the quarterback of the Nebraska Cornhuskers came visiting kids in the hospital, and this little boy said, you're, I forget the name, you're, you're my favorite player, and so he sat down with him, and he talked with him for a while, and the quarterback came back the next week, and the next week, through chemotherapy, through um, operations, and, and at one point, they said, he can go home. He's not totally cured, but he can go home. And um, so this quarterback asked his parents, once or twice a week, can he come to our practice? He can just hang out. You know, we'll give him, we'll like give him a helmet to wear. And they were like, yes, of course, right? So this little boy starts coming. And then if you know big time college football, they have their spring game. Their spring game is where the, the, 
they divide the team in half, play against each other, evaluate talent. But I don't know if you, Nebraska has a spring game that's like no other. They regularly get 60 to 80,000 people for their spring game just against themselves. And they said, the quarterback went to the coach and said, how can we do something for Jack? And this is what they came up with. And he's wearing the number 22, guys. It is Jack Hoffman of Team Jack coming out on the field right now. There's fourth down and short. Jack Hoffman has been adopted really by this football team. A young man who has battled brain cancer is on the field right now for the Huskers. One more snap for Taylor Martinez, too, who will hand it off to Jack. So Taylor gets the shotgun set, gives it to Jack. Here he goes. He's got blockers out in front. There he goes. He's running the midfield. Listen to this crowd. As Jack Hoffman, the young man that, as I mentioned, has really been adopted by this football team to score a touchdown. Oh, wow. What a moment. And both benches empty. That, that was a moment right there. Wow, goosebumps. Yeah, okay. So I've seen that about 180 times, and I can't get over it. Why? Why does that affect us? Why do we see things like that? Sometimes my wife and I, mainly more my wife than me, but she'll watch um, America's Got Talent or some of the things, you know, the highlights of it. And one time it was a young man who was blind and had some uh, disabilities and, um, and he sang. And it was, you know, you know how these things go, right? It was incredible. You know, they're not kicking somebody out who's got, you know, that'd be so horrible. So he sang and it was awesome. The whole place erupted. Everybody got on their feet. The judges all got on their feet. And then one of them realized he doesn't know. And so he said, everyone here is on their feet applauding you. And the guy just breaks, right? Why does that, why does that affect us? And let me say something. If that doesn't affect you, you're a, cool, you're a cruel, cold person. <laughs> That's, I don't know. I mean, I know we're all different. But why does that affect us? And here's why. That is the way things are supposed to be. Where everyone is celebrated, even the least of these. Where, where even a little boy who is in a life and death situation suddenly gets appreciated by 70,000 people. That's how it's supposed to be. But here's the problem, right? We all think of this right away. There's a lot of little boys and girls with brain cancer. They don't all get celebrated that way. That's what it is to live in this world. But things like that give us a glimpse of heaven, of home. Because in that home, everyone will be celebrated. Everyone will be applauded. Everyone will be given, you know, yeah, standing ovation. That's why those things affect us. Because they touch our heart. And our heart goes, I want. That's what I, if you think about it, when we're honest with ourselves, we go, that's what I've been searching for. That's what I've been longing for. That's what I want. And God is saying, that's what I have for you. For you. That's what I have for you. All right.
<sighs> so, they are a glimpse of the joy of home where all are celebrated, all are worthy, all are valued. In this passage, we see the word obey over and over. And it's not obedience to get love. It's not obedience to be worthy, obedience to be valued. Rather, it is an obedience that flows from love. When you do something for someone you love deeply, you think nothing of it. It's not difficult because it flows from love. We talked a lot about this last week. But it's interesting here. Jesus is hitting this again over and over. Love brings obedience. Obedience is not to get love. Obedience shows love. When we do loving acts to people, it shows love. And that's how this works. You know, Judas asked this question. I love how John does this. He goes, I don't want to impugn anyone. It's Judas, not Iscariot, you know, <laughs> not him. So people don't go, what? Right? It's interesting. Jesus basically does not really answer his question in this passage. See, Judas is having trouble. He can't conceive of this, the resurrection or that there'll be some sort of a spiritual journey after the resurrection. He can't conceive the church, the way the world is going to be revolutionized by this movement that Jesus has started. He can't conceive of it. And it seems that Jesus doesn't even try to explain it. It's almost like Jesus is saying again, you'll get it. It's coming. Just, just pay attention. It's going to blow you away. And so he teaches about the greater revelation that will come through the teaching of the Spirit and their obedience and love and, and in, intimacy that they will share with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He keeps hitting them on these themes because he said, this is, you'll recognize what's going on if you keep these things in mind through the next, you know, days and weeks and months and years. It's like he's saying, put me first and you will see me. If you don't put me first, you will not see me so much. That's true for us too. Jesus says, put me first, you will see me. I love it when he says, my, my followers, they will begin to, I will show myself to them. I will show myself to them. As we put him first, he does that. Because love and obedience are simply two sides of the same coin. If you keep the commands, then you love me. If you love me, then you'll keep the commands. He's saying the same thing backwards and forwards. How you live is a function of the things you love. And obedience flows from that. I mean, this is true in all of life. You are what you love. You show it all the time. I saw an article the other day. It was about a homeless shelter that they were trying to build on the... It was not around here. A homeless shelter they were trying to build on the edge of a very expensive um, subdivision neighborhood. And they were interviewing one of the neighbors. And this woman said, we're a pretty progressive neighborhood. We pride ourselves on that. And she said, now we're going to find out what we really believe. Now we're going to find out. Do you love people more than property value? It's a very interesting thing for her to say. I thought, this woman, she's hit the nail on the head. We're all about it, if it doesn't affect me. And, and Jesus is saying here, he put me first, and you will see me. 
If you love me, keep my commands. And what you really love, how you live, shows it. Um, Paul talks about this when he says the love of Christ constrains us. That word constrains means it hems us in and pushes us in one direction. He says the love of Christ pushes us towards serving and loving people because he loves people. Jesus keeps hitting on this theme, too, of seeing. The idea here is to see him on the cross because that changes everything. We think about why he was there. We think about what he accomplished there. And one last thought. I mentioned this last week. I just want to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, he says this is another advocate when he talks about the Spirit. In other words, there's two advocates. Jesus is one, and the Spirit is the other. And the Spirit is that one, he says, that is our counselor, our friend. He confronts us. He pushes us. He shows truth to us. And Jesus can be that too. But also, advocate can mean our lawyer, in a sense, the person who represents us. And the Bible tells us that Satan is the accuser of Christians. And so if he's the accuser, he, there's some, some sort of a courtroom setting. The Bible tells us the father's the judge. There's multiple times in, in, in the epistles where he talks about that. And he also tells us that Jesus is our advocate. In, in uh, Well, here it is. Good, I got it. First John 1, actually, yeah, 1, 9, and then verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? And so he's setting up this idea. It's like there's this courtroom setting, and we come and we say, Father, forgive me. And, and I mentioned this before. I've always thought about that as I'm coming to him for mercy saying, have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on me. Give me one more chance. I was wrong to be indifferent to that person's plight and to ignore them. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. I was wrong to harbor a grudge against that person. Have mercy on me. I was wrong to lose patience with that person, even though he really was being a jerk and you know it. I was still wrong for doing it. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. Give me another chance. But it, it doesn't say he's faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. It says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so it brings this idea of justice into play. But, I mean, I'm not looking for justice when my sins are brought up, right? None of us is going before God saying, God, I just did this, hit me hard. Just lay me out. No, we're looking for mercy, right? And I always looked at that verse that way, and it hit me. He doesn't say mercy. He says he's faithful and he's just. Because justice is at the heart of forgiveness. Jesus is saying to the Father, Father, it would be unjust to punish Bob, to hold this sin against him, because it's already been paid for. You can't have double jeopardy. And so justice is what I want in this situation. He was condemned in our place, and the debt was paid so that we would not be condemned. He's saying, Father, it would be unjust to condemn Bob in this situation because I already paid for it. 
And so we see at the heart of forgiveness is God's justice because it's been paid for. And that's a great thing to think about. I mean, you think about this. In those times when we struggle, maybe we've gotten involved in something we know we shouldn't be involved in, and then you catch yourself and you hate yourself. You're so mad at yourself. You go, why did I do that? Why am I this way? I hate this thing about me. God, I need mercy because I'm just awful. And Jesus is saying, oh, that's been taken care of. I got it. What a great defense lawyer, right? I got it. It's been taken care of. And so that, what does that do? It suddenly gives me a freedom. I don't have to live under that. I go, I say, Lord, I'm sorry. I confess it. And Jesus says, justice has been applied. Go. It's gone. It's clear. It's free. There's nothing between us. And that's a freedom. And I know, we talked about this last week, people will always say, well, that means people can do anything they want. But here's what happens. When you come to know Jesus Christ, you don't want to do that. You don't want to use his grace as some kind of foot map that you, foot, foot mat that you wipe your feet on. You suddenly go, I want to obey. I don't always. But this is what I want. And so, what do we do with this? What do we do with this information? We see the Spirit teaching and counseling and empowering us. He's our friend. He's our counselor. We need to listen to him. We need to let him speak. We need to not quench him. We need to sometimes sit down and read, look at the word, and let it speak to us. And the Spirit will use it. I love it when David says, search my heart, O Lord, and see if there's any wicked way in me. That's a scary thing to pray, right? You ever pray that? God, just show me where I'm wrong. Oh, crap. (laughs) It's too much. You know, overlook. But that idea, I I, I need to get things right with God, and I need to allow the Spirit to work and to speak to me. We need to let him speak. We not, not quench him. We need to focus on Jesus, he says because that's what the Spirit wants us to do as we run the race. Act in love towards God and towards others. See the destination we're heading towards, that home that we get glimpses of occasionally, and it just catches our heart. We get glimpses of home. That's where we're going. And that's how we're supposed to live in in light of that. I think also I I encourage people sometimes when I'm talking about this stuff, I say, know your rights. You're a child of God. Know what your rights are. This thing, what I've done, it doesn't define me because of who I am in Christ. This thing over here, it doesn't own me because of who I am in Christ. What these people say cannot hurt me, cannot change me, cannot affect me in any way that is huge because of who I am in Jesus Christ. I can live differently. And that's what the Spirit does for us. That's how we apply and we think about these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word, the power of your word. God, we thank you in this world that we sometimes get glimpses of home. And we love it. We love seeing it and hearing it. We love experiencing it. And these are just the hors d'oeuvres, the little bits before the main course. 
And Lord, help us to allow that to change, allow the Spirit to work and to change us from the inside out with the power that raised Jesus from the dead. God, we want that power. And it is in us and with us. Help us to be able to find, to use it, to be quiet and yield to it. And as we do that, Lord, the changes happen, and we thank you for that. God, as we leave this place, maybe this week, you'll bring someone in our life that we can talk to, that we can minister to, that we can love, that we can show grace to, and lay the seeds to affect their life for eternity. Help us to be open and looking for that in our walk with you this week. In all of these things, we give you the praise and the glory because we come to you in the name of our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen.